0: Thanks for coming. Um, I'm um, I'm here to talk. Um, I, on the website, it says I'm going to give a plan for peace, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only, if only. Um, so um, I'm going to give a brief introduction, and then I'm going to give a talk in I think five acts. Act one will be a very brief history. Act two will be Hamas's goals and what it tried to do on October seventh. Um, act three will be a discussion of what political scientists, political philosophers call just war theory, how to think about the war, how to think what's right, what's wrong. Act four will be about Israel's strategic goals. Act five will be, um, I'll, I'll talk personally about my own connections and my own feelings about it, um, but up until then, I'll talk to you as a political philosopher and as a political scientist, uh, which is what I am, um, to give a slight introduction. I do teach a course uh, most years on what's called the ethics of peace, war, and defense, what uh, is called in the Christian tradition, because it emanates from the Christian tradition, um, just war theory. Um, so I will, I will speak from that. Um, I also live in a political science department, and we talk about things like what are the strategic goals of the actors involved. So I will speak about that. Um, but I want to give a, 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 a preface, which is down. Keep going. Okay. Um, which is that we we urge, what I want you to urge you to do is, um, you know, we live in a world of binaries, uh, except maybe for sexuality, uh, good and bad, uh, colonizer, high, um, colonize, so on and so forth. Um, but we live in a world that is more complex than these binaries, um, and I want you, uh, I think these binaries actually... Um, are not true to the human condition. I think. I think the human condition is a complicated and complex one, where good people do bad things, um, or uh, struggle with all kinds of things. Um, and so, um, I want. I want us all to think about um, complexity. Complexity does not mean you can't make moral judgment. Um, and so, I'm going to talk about the the complexity, but I'm going to have clear moral judgment um, on a on a on a variety of issues, which you can agree with me or not, as you wish. Um, but killing lots of people usually is something that calls for <laughs> judgment, and that's what I will exercise today. I also want to say that, um, in the spirit of what I just said, um, I never call myself a Zionist. I never call myself an anti-Zionist. Um, I, I never call myself pro-Israeli or anti-Israeli. Um, my starting points, I'm not pro-Palestinian or anti-Palestinian. Here are my starting points. Number one, Israel exists. Um, So, so, by the way, does Slovakia and France and Peru and Colombia. Lots of countries exist, Israel is one of them. Number two, the Palestinians exist. Um, They exist on Gaza and they exist on the West Bank. Um, And so so I start with that, Um, and my own ethical perspective is that I am for for people living with peace and dignity, um, with compromises, with, with negotiation and compromises to make that happen. Um, So that may sound simple and obvious to you, um, if only other people shared that view as well. Um, But note also, and you can ask me more about this later, I do do not use the word justice uh, in that. Um, And that's important in various ways. Um, And so to to preface my view, there's my daughter, uh, to preface my view um, a little bit is, the opponents of this are some Israeli settlers and their supporters, some of who exist in the Israeli government, um, and Hamas as well. Right? They are both of these groups. I think are enemies of what I just said, um, and I'll go from there. So, in the rest of my talk, I'll speak about 30 minutes, um, and I'm going to start with a small bit of history. So. I'm gonna. You can always question when you can start. You can start in biblical times. You can start in the 19th century. I'm gonna start in 1948. 1948 is the war of independence for Israel and what the Palestinians call Nakba, which means catastrophe in Arabic. Right. So the state of Israel is born, and there is this thing called the Gaza Strip, and there's 80,000 people who live on the Gaza Strip, um, who are uh, who are Arabs. But then. Because of the war, another 150,000 refugees come in, right? So refugees are people who flee the war or are pushed out by the Israelis. At this point, Gaza is controlled by Egypt, but Egypt does not annex it. They don't incorporate it. They don't really want it. Um, it's a lot of people. It's not. It's, 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 it's poor. Um, and then, um, uh, but nonetheless, there is movement between, between, is between Egypt and, and Gaza. So um, let's move ahead to 1967. 1967 is what the Israelis called the Six-Day War, and they take over Gaza Strip. In this war from Egypt, they also take the Sinai, right? In 1973, we have a peace treaty. No, 1977. There's a peace treaty with Sinai with 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 Egypt. In Egypt says, we want the Sinai desert back, but Gaza, no, you you keep that. We don't we don't want it, right? Um, and so Israel still has the Gaza Strip, um, which it doesn't really need or want. It's not um, they're, they're, strategically. It doesn't have a lot of advantages. Um, so, um, so at this point in 1967, um, there's 400,000 people who live in the Gaza Strip. Today, there's two million people who live in the Gaza Strip. Right, very high birth rate, very high birth rate, um, and um, with a ideology, or, or uh, yeah, so, um, so and, and a lot of young people, so, I mean, I will tell you that the future of Gaza, no matter peace or not, I mean, even under great, con- uh, under peace, it's not necessarily going to be a flourishing place. Um, okay, so, um, um, a little bit of history about Israel, which is that, in 1967, settlements begin, um, mostly in the West Bank, and not very many. Um, just a few, 1977, um, which is you know just before the peace treaty with with Egypt, Menachem Begin takes over um, his his party uh, wins the election. His party is Likud, which is the same party of Benjamin Netanyahu, and the settlement project expands greatly mostly on the west bank but there are a few settlements in gaza eventually totally totaling 23 these these are left um, um under Ariel Sharon, maybe 20 years ago or so the settlements in gaza are don't have the same historical importance same biblical importance to to some of the jewish population that those on the west bank do so settlements in gaza um are there but they're not they don't have the same kind of role or or, or place in in the Jewish consciousness of those who are religious or who take the, uh, the land of Israel as described in the Bible as 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 important. Okay, we have, after 94, 1994, we have um, negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. The Palestinian Authority is established, this is led by Arafat. Um, I'm not going to give you a history of Oslo. Um, The Palestinian Authority tends to be corrupt. Um, It is led by a group called Fatah. Um, And there are elections in Gaza. And in 2006, Hamas wins the election. There's a brief civil war in which Fatah members are killed or expelled. Hamas is I mean, they are. The guy in charge of Hamas is his nickname is 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 the butcher. um, Just so you know. Um, So Hamas is you can think of Iran and Hamas in the same kind of way. Um, And but one of the reasons why it wins is because it's not corrupt. It 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 is in contrast to the Palestinian Authority. It's better at delivering services. Its people do not live in wealthy homes behind gate, be behind behind big gates. And this is what happens with the Palestinian Authority. So so for the average person in Gaza, their choice is not necessarily between an Islamic organization and a non-Islamic one, but between corrupt and non-corrupt. Right? And they picked they picked the non-corrupt one. Okay, so. Um, Hamas, though, at the time, has a charter. It's revised the charter, although what the revision means is a little unclear, where it's dedicated to the destruction of Israel and to the expulsion of most of the Jews or killing of most of the Jews in Israel. So this is in charge, this is the organization in charge of of Gaza. Um, So Hamas throws missiles over to Israel. Every once in a while, Israel hits back. these, these missiles kill very few people, but they're terrifying. Sirens go off in Israel, people have to run into, into shelters, stop what they're doing. It is gen- generally a terrifying thing. And you never know when one is going to hit a school or an office building, so on and so forth. Um, OK, so um, and then, of course, there is some terrorism in Israel as time goes on. Israel basically says, we're not going to." We're not going to directly negotiate with Hamas, but under the Netanyahu government, they allow Qatar. Did I just hit this? No. no? Yeah. yeah. They they allow Qatar to fund Hamas with I'm not kidding suitcases of cash, um, and so Qataris or people from Hamas cross from the Egypt border into Israel with suitcases of of cash to help Hamas. Um, and from the Israeli point of view, and this is Netanyahu's government, and as you can tell, as you will be able to tell, I'm not a fan of Netanyahu. Um, Netanyahu likes the division between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, right? He wants to divide them, right, because he thinks dividing them makes them both weaker. This is, in my view, um, a strategic a strategic mistake. Um, so nonetheless, over the last few years, things seem quiet, and Israel allows people from Gaza to work in Israel. So 20,000 Gazans are, are, are working in Israel, many of them um, in those neighboring towns uh, to the Strip that were you know, the, the subject of the massacre, right? Um, and then some people from the West Bank are also working in Israel as well. Um, Israel is lulled into complacency. Um, As you may know, over the last few months it was uh, riven by a lot of protests inside of Israel because the government is viewed by many Israelis as as extreme. Um, Israel had um, a saying about how to deal with Hamas and Gaza, and the translation in English is mowing the lawn. And what that meant is every few years Israel would have to go in and you know bomb a few things and take care of a few things, you know, because Hamas would be throwing missiles, and then there would be like you know getting it back, you know cutting them down to size. And then it would happen again and again. Um, As you'll see when I talk later on, I think this is a strategic error. I think it's obvious a a strategic error. I think it's obvious now. But I think it's obvious before that. So Israel got complacent. It builds um, an underground wall um, between Gaza and Israel. And the reason is Hamas is very good at building tunnels. And it builds tunnels from Gaza into Israel itself. Um, this is how it snatched a soldier many years ago called Gilad Shalit, that you may have heard of, who was traded for 1,500 Palestinians a few years ago. So they're very good at building tunnels. Um, the sand is easy to build, to, to build tunnels under, and these tunnels, of course, do pose a threat to Israel. It builds, um, it builds a wall, an underground wall, and, th- and then there's a fence. Um, and it becomes complacent. Um, it thinks things are under control. Its eyes really are, are, are elsewhere um and it thought things were fine but hamas in the meantime is planning something (laughs) and israel doesn't really pay attention i'm sure now um, when they look back on it they'll be able to put the dots together because once you have a framework you have a framework of i mean this is what israel wants right it wants the Palestinians or the leadership in Israel wants the Palestinians to be to accept this this situation where they have kind of semi-autonomy but not full autonomy and have great restrictions put on them by the Israelis, but also by the Egyptians. I want to be clear that it, Gaza has two borders, one with uh, Israel, one with Egypt. And many times we hear that that Israel is blockading um, uh, Gaza, and that's true, and, that, and that's only partly true. It's an Israel-Egyptian blockade of Gaza, um, let's just be clear about that, and the reason is Hamas is, um, has, an, has an ideology that is inimical to the Egyptian regime, right, so they're also considered, so the Egyptians are worried about the Hamas ideology, um, which is allied with the Muslim Brotherhood, I will not give you a history of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, but it is something that the Egyptians are worried about. So, Hamas has this ideology. National aspirations, historically, can never be bought off. Right? A people's nationalistic aspirations will never be undermined in a significant way by economic benefits. It just doesn't happen. Um, and 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 so. Um, National aspirations, if they're not satisfied in some way, will often turn violent. And so with Hamas, you have the national aspirations of the Palestinian people combined with an Islamic ideology, right? There is, there is both. It is important to think about them separately, right? Not every Palestinian is a supporter of Hamas. Many are not, right? But Hamas does combine them. Um, so why did Hamas do what it did on October seventh? Number one, it was worried that the Palestinian issue was receding from the world stage. And they were right about that. Um, And they wanted to get the world's attention back on it. Um, And number two, and relatedly, it was worried about all the alliances Israel was making with the Gulf states. And so historically, Israel had no relations with the Arab world, and then um, it did with Egypt, and then with Jordan. um, Kind of cold relations, but nonetheless relations. And then it started having relationships with the Arab states in 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 the in, uh, in, the, in the Gulf, and n- notably, started negotiating directly with the Saudis. Um, and so, the new generation of Arab leaders did not care as much about the Palestinian issue as the older generation of Arab leaders. And um, this, in kind of ways, w- and, and without their support, the Palestinian issue um, becomes, um, you know, uh, secondary. Um, uh, also, Hamas doesn't mind killing Israeli Jews. It thinks it's okay. It's not. It's not a problem ideologically for them to, for them to do that. That's simply acceptable. Um, and also, it thought taking hostages would moderate Israel's response. Um, and on this, it's unclear how much uh, that was that was that's true or not. So I think, from Hamas's point of view, um, strategically, this is Act Two. Um, strategically, this is a great success. Israel. Is, I mean the Palestine issue is now back on the world agenda. people are concerned about it um, and so regardless of what you think about how, how, whether what it did was you know moral or not from the simply the point of view of strategy like what is their goal they succeed right they succeed um, And so, and so, the, and so the Palestinian issue is now back on the world agenda. As we all know, this is why I'm here, right? Otherwise, if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be here today, right? And this is the third talk I've given. In three weeks, I'm giving another talk at the Kehila in a couple of weeks. And so here I am, right? And otherwise, otherwise I would not be here, and you would all be enjoying your Thanksgiving Sunday morning doing something else. <laughs> so, um, All right, so now I'm going to move to just war theory um, and talk about it. Um, uh, for, a f- for a few minutes. So just war theory is, at, is, is basically divided into two categories, use ad bellum and use in bello. Sorry for the Latin. I will now talk English. So the first one is, is the war itself just? And then the second one is, is your conduct in the war just? Right. So for those of you who know your World War II history, the bombing of Dresden. Does the bombing of Dresden ring a bell to anybody? So the bombing of Dresden was, was terrible. The sky was lit on fire. The war was just against the Nazis. But the bombing of Dresden was not. It was not necessary for the war effort. It was, it was a terrible thing. Thousands of people were killed. It was an unjust act in a just war. Conversely, you can start a war unjustly and still act in a just manner, right? So for example, many armies, even if they're acting unjustly, um, will not kill prisoners of war, for example. Some will. Mm, not sure about the Russians right now, and I'm not going to talk about that, but nonetheless um, non- nonetheless you can have you can, the two are not necessarily connected. Okay, so what does this mean so in just war theory, um, purposefully aiming to kill civilians is always wrong, right? Killing civilians can be acceptable under, cer- under certain cir- circumstances. So this line that some people have said that uh, because all Israelis are settler colonialists, they can be killed is not acceptable according to just war theory. And if you would think about that, that would may- mean all of us were legitimate targets by indigenous peoples here right so it's not really um a plausible argument on moral grounds right because we're all we are all settler colonialists according to settler colonial theory i could talk a little more about that later if you want so um so to, to go to the attack on october 7th they per- Hamas purposely aimed to kill civilians and did so in a very gruesome way also. That doesn't matter so much, um, except just adds to the evil and terribleness of the event. Um, so you could say, Jeff, but strategically they succeeded, but yet you're saying it was immoral. So what could they have done? Well, they could have just aimed at the army bases. There were several army bases there. And while we could argue or not whether it, they were right to attack, they could have attacked just the army bases and killed soldiers, which is terrible in itself, but that would not have been against the rules of war. It would not have been, from the point of view of just war theory, an unethical act. And they could have done that. They could have. They could have gone into the the civilian towns. They could have they could have captured people and then let them go. They could have destroyed, um, you know, property. Right. There. There are other things they could have done to show that. Uh, to show the world that they, they, that they mattered, it still would have been all over the news, It still would have been something big. So my point is that Hamas had choices in what it could do in order to achieve its strategic goals and it shows the most gruesome you know uh, way, not maybe not not the most gruesome, but one of the most gruesome ways that it could it could do. Um, I also want to say that Hamas missiles, and also those of Hezbollah, which is a militia group in the north on the Lebanon border, whenever they aim a missile in Israel, if it's not aimed at a military base, and many of them are not, it is, an, uh, it is a war crime. I mean, we don't think about it that way, because often they just harm property or they don't kill anybody. But aiming missiles at civilians is never allowed. It's never allowed, right? And the fact that you miss is not an excuse. Right? It doesn't get in the news as much, right, because killing people gets in the news. But the fact that you're, and so right now there's missiles coming, a few from Yemen, from the Houthi rebels, who knew that they existed. Anyone ever heard of the Houthis before? Yeah, a few of you did, right? So um, Houthis are supported by Iran, Hezbollah supported by Iran, Hamas is supported by Iran. And so whenever they throw missiles into Israel, which is often is um, against the rules of war, Taking hostages is also not allowed by the ethics of war. By the way, you can take prisoners of war, but they have to be soldiers, right? Taking civilians, not allowed. Not allowed. Um, all right. So for Israel, this is what the Israelis view: what they call an existential threat. In other words, their 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 existence as a state seems to be a. Th- uh, Uh, threat, right, and so, because you do have missiles from the north, you have Hamas from the south, you have Iran saying we want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, and so this seems to Israel to be pretty extreme. Um, Israel can defend itself, it can defend its borders, it can try to do uh, what it can, and I'll talk a little more about this, to degrade Hamas, Um, and this will inevitably mean that civilians will die. Particularly since the battlefield is an urban area. Okay. Um, But all of these statements have to be qualified, right? So, first, its aim at eliminating Hamas is unachievable. (laughs) And so, um, sorry, I'm not really talking in the right place for the (laughs) microphone. Um, I'm used to walking around a lot. I'm actually walking for me. For me, I'm moving very little. Uh, Usually, I would be like across the stage, but. Here I am trying to get close to the mic and failing even at that. Nonetheless, (laughs) so um, let me say, here I am walking back again. So let me just say that um, the, the goal of eliminating Hamas, as I think everyone knows, is not achievable. And the problem with having an unachievable goal is that you increase the amount of weaponry and. Uh, That you're going to use right because it's not achievable and so you need to you need to have an achievable goal um, And obviously protecting your state is something that you need to do um, But it needs to have a goal of degrading Hamas And so that's what I'm going to assume the goal is right how to degrade Hamas's military capabilities and so Israel has a right to go after Hamas. The battlefield is an urban area because Gaza is, is an urban area. But it must do so in a way that... Um, inflicts the least amount of harm possible on civilians. Civilians will die, there is no question. Um, And also, um, this also means that collective punishment is wrong. So one of Israel's first acts was to cut off water and electricity. And that is not allowed by the rules of war. Um, You can't cut off water and electricity to to civilians. And you have to allow for humanitarian aid, which now it is allowing um, with this exchange of hostages. But it took a while for Israel to get there. Um, And um, I think a lot of people, including myself, would think that it's, that it, it took too long. Um, it is a little complicated. You really can't deny humanitarian aid in exchange for hostages. Just because Hamas did the war wrong doesn't mean you get to do the, wo- the, the war wrong also. That's not really how it works. But it's complicated because Hamas is now making a deal for humanitarian aid for hostages. And so while well, I would say the ethics of war would say they're both wrong, you should release the hostages, um, uh, uh, even if there's no humanitarian aid, and you should give humanitarian aid even if there are no release of hostages, nonetheless, both sides have now, are now in this sort of uh, dance of doing one bad for the other, right? And, and um, or one good for the other, however you want to put it. Um, so the ethics of war here are probably not, I mean, I think we can use them to analyze the situation, but either, either side, now both sides are committed to disregarding that in this, in this way. So, let me talk for a minute about the meaning of proportionality. Um, So, proportionality is often used in the press, like what is proportionate and what is not proportionate. And so, I want to talk about it in in two different ways. So, the first way to think about proportionality is it's proportionate to the threat. Okay? So, if it's 10 years ago and Hamas throws two missiles over into Israel and they don't kill that, they kill nobody. You know, you can respond, but you can't, you know, you're not going to, uh, uh, a proportionate response wouldn't be bombing for two weeks, right? We would think that the one thing was very little, and the other thing is way, way, way dis- disproportionate response. But if the threat is to your existence of, of a st- as a state, right, then what is a proportionate response is, the, is, is, is more open, right? and it could be, it could be bigger, it will be bigger. The second way to think about proportionality, and you can think about them both, they're not contradictory, is proportionate with what is the act that you're doing, and what is the military gain? And is that act that you're doing proportionate to the military gain? So I'm going to give you um, uh, one example, and then I'm going to make it more complicated. So you see some Hamas commander running down the street, and you say, oh, we're going to get him. We're going to throw a bomb on him, and we're going to kill him. And you do some analysis. And the military often does do this, uh, if they have the time. And they say, obviously, if he's running down the street, you're not going to do this. But if you know that he'll be running down the street, you say, OK, we're going to throw a 200-pound 200, 200 bomb, and we're going to kill him, and we're going to kill two civilians. You know, it's going to be one to two. So the legal guy is going to say, that's fine. You can do that, right? Um, Because there's often a lawyer in the room, a military lawyer. (laughs) Not always, but often, right? Anyone see the movie Eye in the Sky? Yeah, right? If you've seen the movie Eye in the Sky, you know this is how it works. Um, But only if there's time. Like an eye in the sky, they had a lot of time to figure it out. Often there's not. So what if you say, well, we're not sure if we can get the guy with a 200-pound bomb. We're going to have to throw a bigger bomb. We're going to have to throw a 2,000-pound bomb. Israel's used a bunch of 2,000-pound bombs. I'll explain why. Um, and by doing that, though, we're going to kill 300 civilians for the one Hamas commander. So then you're thinking, well, 300, that's not good, right? That's, that's a bad ratio, right? Some, seems wrong. So what I'm going to tell you about numbers and morality is that we're going to differ, right? So on the extremes, we're all going to agree: three hundred to one, that's bad, right? Two to one, maybe that's fine. But then go to two hundred. What if you kill two hundred? Maybe not hundred, right? And then work up from two, five. Maybe, and then you go to 50, right? What if the Hamas commander is really important? He's like number three in the command structure. So what I'm gonna tell you is that our judgments are gonna differ, right? From the extremes, they're gonna be the same, but as we move to the center, we're gonna have differing judgments. Um, and so I'm gonna tell you on the extremes, it's gonna be easy to say it's disproportionate, and then and then, and then then not. And in fact, there's been studies done, um, just war theorists have been given different scenarios, and then they tell you what they think, and their, judge- their judgments are all over. Over the map right um, and so it's hard it's gonna be hard for us to judge like how important is that Hamas commander right um, and so it's gonna be hard to judge but yet it does seem pretty clearly to I think a lot of people that bombing for weeks on end which Israel did is disproportionate to the military gain and um, and that the military gain is, is unclear. There's probably some military gain. But after three or four days of bombing, the uh, military gain you're getting is going to start to recede, right? The marginal return, uh, sorry for talking like a social scientist, the marginal return is going to start to decrease over time. So Israel will also say that it needs to get at the tunnels. right? So Hamas has, as you probably read, this huge network of very sophisticated tunnels. And Hamas lives in the tunnels. They can live there for weeks or months. Um, and you can't get them with small bombs. Um, you have to get them with big bombs. So is it justified um, knowing that you're going to kill a lot of civilians? Uh, you know, my judgment is, is usually not. Um, That you have to go in. You have to send troops on the ground. Civilians still will die when you do that, but fewer will die, and that matters. Uh, I mean, I know it's hard to think about this in terms, but fewer dead people is better than more dead people. um, And you are going to have to send troops on the ground in order to do that, uh, which they now, which Israel now has done, um, but it took them a long time. I think partly because. (laughs) It was caught off ground and it didn't have a plan to go into Gaza. And if you're going to go in to a place, an urban, an urban place, and take care to not kill civilians and to achieve your military goals and what Israel wants to do with minimal loss to its soldiers, that takes time to prepare. You can't just go in the next week. I think a lot of us thought Israel must have a plan to go in on its shelves. Militaries do all these exercises, and it was very clear that whatever plans it had were not relevant anymore. They were old, they were not inoperable, they, they, were, they were inoperable, and so it put them away. Um, and so it bombed and bombed and bombed while it was trying to do, do something better. My own view, so I, I do want to say that, um, I'm going to give you my own view, but Israel was traumatized by what happened on October 7th. There was a trauma throughout the country that's very hard to describe. It was a trauma both by what happened and the horror of what happened, right? Babies killed, children killed in front of their parents, parents killed in front of their children. I mean, it was, it was truly horrifying and put on social media in a way that we rarely see. And so the personal, the, the, the personal horror, like how it was done you know, by people who knew what they were doing and gleefully did it was traumatic. And the second trauma was the strategic, political, and military failure of the government and the army to protect its citizens, right? That the view in Israel is that of the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just not gonna. Keep going. Yeah, the view is, That the IDF is great, right? The Israel Defense Forces is one of the world's best. Like, if you were going to, like, two months ago, if you were going to pick, like, we need one army to protect us, right? You know, you would pick, you know, the Americans and the Israelis, that would be, you know, up on top, right? And so there was great trauma, too, by the complete failure of the Israeli army to defend itself. So there was this intense trauma going on. And then a demand for a response. I mean, you can think of it also in terms of 9/11. You know, the trauma that we all felt, um, and 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 the need for a response. Um, I do think Israel should have waited to respond. I think it's easy for me to say. I want to acknowledge that. Like, it's easy for me to say that. I think if it waited to respond, the horror of the massacre would have seeped into the consciousness of the world. Um, it would, you know, the stories would have come out and out and out, and I'm not saying Israel shouldn't have responded. I think it had to respond militarily. If, if someone attacks you militarily, you actually have to respond. This is what um, we call in political science, or so, tit for tat, like you can't take a blow and, and just accept it and, and then hope that it doesn't happen again, right? You have to respond, but you can respond intelligently, and that might mean waiting, and figuring it out, and responding in the best possible way to minimize civilian casualties, because world public opinion matters. And this is where just war theory matters. People say to me, Jeff, we know that's an oxymoron just war theory, but actually it matters because if you kill fewer people, you are, um, a world public opinion will be on your side more than if you kill more people. Um, and so I think Israel made a strategic error by... Um, by, by responding like it did, um, which is to say, it needed to respond. But it responded out of rage and anger, um, and as we all know, uh, these are, you know, <laughs> human frailty uh, suggests that we often do respond out of rage and anger, and often badly, right? These are never great ways to think about how to respond, so I want to both understand why they did it, um, which I do, but also suggest that maybe this was not the best way to respond. Um, Okay, so um, I also want to add that one of the things that has happened in all this is that this Israeli right-wing government has turned a blind eye to the violence that some, not all, some of the settlers have inflicted on the Palestinians in the West Bank. Um, And um, they've terrorized Palestinians, killed many dozens, I'm not sure the count right now, um, forced some to flee their villages in a way that is absolutely inexcusable and um, reprehensible. Um, I also just want everyone to remember at the same time that Hamas that we have to distinguish support for the Palestinians living in, in dignity, um, yeah, which, which to me means a Palestinian state um, and support and, and support for, for Hamas, which is uh, you can support the Palestinian state and not support Hamas. Hamas is a patriarchal, misogynist uh, organization, right. <laughs> um, that if you're gay, for example, they will kill you. It's not. It's, it's not. You know, this is this is an Iran-backed organization for a reason, right? Um, in Iran, if you don't wear your hijab, they put you in jail. Um, or they kill you. Whatever, whatever. They don't really care. Um, and so this is this is an organization allied with that. And I think, I think we have to keep that in mind. And I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about that in a minute. Um, so. Israel's strategic goals. So. Israel's strategic goals and all this are to degrade Hamas. It says to eliminate Hamas and won't do that, um, and it wants to get out its hostages. the The problem that Israel is facing is that those two things are a little in tension with one another. Israel has two bedrock principles: never negotiate with terrorists, and always and never leave anyone behind. And these don't work well together. And so it finds itself in a quandary about how it's going to move forward with this. Um, And so we see now a pause, right? Um, And one of the things that Hamas did is take a lot of hostages in order to to put leverage on Israel. What it should have done, uh, this would have been against the rules of war, but not as gruesome, as it should have taken a lot more hostages, in my view, and killed a lot fewer people. Um, and But it decided not to do that. Again, it made a choice. It made a choice to kill over 1,200 people, mostly civilians. Um, the problem with Israel's strategic vision is that's a vision that lasts for a few weeks or a couple of months. It's not a long-term vision, even a medium-term vision. and. The only way, in my view, again, um, but a view I think that is shared by many people, is that any long-term strategic vision also has to be guided by a political vision. In other words, military goals are subject to political goals, right? If you win the war, you have to figure out what happens the day after. <laughs> and that's politics and not military, right? That's why the general that's why you don't want the generals in charge, right? The generals are in charge of winning the war, but not of the ultimate objective. And without an ultimate political objective, the war is is, you know, you can win the war, but you you you, yeah, you need to win the war to what end? And from my mind. The lack of an ultimate political objective is a problem for Israel. The ultimate political objective ought to be living alongside a Palestinian state, which will then also include maintaining or buttressing your alliances with various Arab states and an alliance with Saudi Arabia as well right? So that's a strategic vision, right? A safe and secure Israel is not oppressing another people alongside itself and is part of a regional alliance that is against Iran. This Israeli government, which I'm not a fan of, doesn't seem to have that. And so they don't really have a strategic vision. It has short-term goals, but not medium-term goals. Can someone get me a glass of water? I'm sorry. (laughs) You have coffee. Coffee is not water. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> this is my daughter from New York, Davita, who came in. <laughs> Using my coffee thing. That's okay. <laughs> Love you. You're, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're <not. laughs> no, you're not. Um Okay. So I'm gonna end on a personal note and then I'll take questions. So I have two brothers who live in Israel. Uh, I have how many nieces and nephews? A lot. (laughs) I have um, two nephews in Gaza right now. Um, I have another nephew that was in the north, but came down, has been released by the army. Thank you. what I find so painful for me, um, and I speak now as an American Jew and not as, as a professor, is that you know the Holocaust, I have aunts and uncles that I grew up with, with numbers on their arms. And um, my Aunt Paula, I'm going to try not to cry right now. My Aunt Paula, it took me years to understand, when I would see my Aunt Paula, she squeezed me so hard, it hurt. And I finally figured out when I was an older teenager, every single of one of her relatives was killed by the Nazis. It was her second marriage to my, aunt, my, my, my uncle Aaron. So her husband and children were killed and all of her relatives. So we were all that she had. And so she squeezed, she squeezed us so hard, you know. And to think that some people in Israel have not taken that lesson, right? And I am speaking about some of the settlers, the aggressive settlers on the West Bank. is just so painful for me. What's also painful, as a person who considers himself part of the American left, is how some parts of the activist left just cheered on the Palestinians after October 7th. You know, when you refuse to see other people as human, when you've lost your humanity, I don't know what to say. It's just very painful. And so I end where I started to live in dignity with each other. Sometimes we need to be separate to do that, and that's fine if that's what it needs to, it needs to do, to negotiate and compromise to get there. That's just what we need to do, one way or another. Thank you.